Open up to Romans chapter 5. We're going to read the two, the two verses of Romans chapter 5 here, and we're going to pray. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And look at this. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Let's think about that this morning. And let's start by prayer. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for um, these two verses that show us the true glorious assurance that is ours in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We go from being your enemies to being the objects of your love and your affection and your sanctification and your determination. We pray that these verses would stick deeply into our hearts and into our minds and shape the way we live. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember, um, we're doing an overview on the the message of Romans. Um, And last week, we got through three, yes, three, out of seven reasons for why you should know the message of Romans. This week, we are going to get through two, if I'm lucky. Two reasons why you should know the message of Romans. Now, if I get to the end of my first reason that I'm going to cover today, and it is already uh, close to the end, I'll just shut it down early and hope you guys have some questions or something, and then we can move on from there. But we're going to look at two reasons, two more reasons why you should learn and know and delight in the message of Romans. Remember our basic outline for the book? Our basic outline Paul gives an intro and a greetings, and then he gives a quick thesis, and then of course immediately at verse 18 he sets up the problem. This is your real problem. When you understand your real problem, Everything in life comes into perspective, right? He sets up the problem for the first three chapters, and then he reveals the solution in chapters three through four, and then he explains the solution in five through eight, and then he answers the solution's biggest problem in nine through 11, and then he provides applications of the solution in 12 all the way through 15, and then he finally explains kind of his purpose and his reason for writing all of this and his hope to come to them soon, and then, of course, he signs off. That's what Paul does in the letter to the Romans. We have, of course, looked at the the intro, the greetings, the thesis, the problem, the solution. Remember, remember Paul is one who is quick when he's introducing himself to quickly move on to Jesus, right? To introduce um, yourself to Paul is to introduce yourself to Jesus, right? Paul cannot talk long about himself before he is suddenly talking about Jesus. That is someone who has been transformed by the gospel, isn't it? Paul is, of course, not ashamed of the gospel. He will preach the gospel message to everyone and anyone. Why does he do that? Well, he tells us in chapter 1, verse 18, doesn't or chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is God's power. And everyone needs God's power in their life. So Paul is not ashamed, regardless of where he goes. Even if he goes to those upper, those upper sophisticated uh, um, 
areas in Rome that maybe look down on his silly little one-God-only religion. He is not ashamed of the gospel. He'll preach the gospel to everyone because it is the power of God. And that's his thesis, right? It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's this message. That's this good news. And then in verse 17, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. That's Paul's whole argument in two verses. And of course, he has to prove that, right? So in uh, chapter one through three, he, he sets up the problem. Remember, God's righteousness is your biggest problem. Um, your situation is not your biggest problem. Your society is not your biggest problem. Your weaknesses inside of you are not your biggest problem. God's righteousness is your biggest problem. God's righteousness will judge you in your sin in, in a future time and also even in the present. That's what he's talking about in the first three verses. God's law reveals to you your sin. God's law is not a way for you to work your way towards God and to kind of accumulate righteousness in yourself and, and get into heaven that way. God's law has one purpose and it is to show you how far you fall short. Matter of fact, look at kind of the, the conclusion of God's law in chapter 3, verses 23. You're familiar with these verses, but, but think about it again, right? Here's the truth. All have sinned and all have what? fallen short of the glory of God. Remember that phrase, the glory of God? That's what you've fallen short of. That's what you need to achieve to enter into heaven. You need to be glorious. You need to, be, uh, you need to have the righteousness of God yourself. All have sinned and fallen short of the, prob- uh, the glory of God. And that's our biggest problem. God's righteousness is actually our biggest problem. And that's that's where Paul also turns and reveals the solution. Remember that? God's righteousness is also your only solution. He talks about this in three twenty-one and continuing, right? Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest, uh, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is not through works, though, but what is it? 22. It's through faith in Christ Jesus for all those who believe. We are justified, verse 24, as a gift by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, right? You need God's righteousness to have hope in God. But that righteousness doesn't come to you through what you do, but all through through what you believe. It comes to you as a gift from Christ. Christ achieves that righteousness on your behalf, and you walk in His righteousness. And that is all by faith, not by works, by faith. And that moves us to where we we started, chapter 5, verse 2. Remember, because you have been justified by faith, what? You rejoice, you boast in the hope of the glory of God. The glory of God is no longer a terrifying thing to you. The glory of God is joy and boasting. Why? Because you are in Christ's righteousness and not your own. You're in Christ's glory and not your own. That is why you have hope in God. So, remember remember our first two reasons. I'll just go through them really quick. Remember, we want to read Romans. We want to know the message of Romans because we want to ascend Paul's theological mountaintop, right? This is, this is kind of a, 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 big, a 
big piece of Paul's theological understanding. It's not everything Paul believes, but it's, it's a massive mountaintop in the gospel, right? And we want to ascend this with him. We want to be transformed in the renewal of our minds. That was the second reason why we want to know the message of Romans, right? We are transformed in this life, not just magically, mystically. We're transformed by making God's thoughts our thoughts. And that leads us to the third reason why we want to know the message of Romans. We want to compare Paul's gospel with ours. We want to change our gospel in any way that doesn't line up with the gospel that is revealed to us in the New Testament. Once again, what would happen to your life? What would happen to your faith if it looked, if it looked parallel, exactly like the gospel message that's presented to you in the New Testament? Your assurance of salvation would soar, right? When you understand the gospel as the New Testament understands the gospel in all of its difficulties and, 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 and humility that it produces in you, right? I'm a sinner and I need Christ's righteousness and righteousness from him alone. When you understand that assurance skyrockets in your life. And that's fitting for us because we're, we're kind of in a series this fall about assurance. And actually Romans has a lot to do with assurance. That's the next reason you should read Romans, that's the next reason you should know the message of Romans, because a massive piece of Romans, probably the most famous section in Romans, is all about assurance. If you know the message of Romans, number four, if you're still keeping notes from last week, or number one, if you want to just start over again, number four, you can discover soaring salvation assurance. If you know the message of Romans, you can discover soaring salvation assurance assurance is your salvation assurance kind of just puttering along like not really sure if i have assurance or not through the message of romans you can soar you can soar matter of fact this leads us to the the major section as i was talking about in romans uh the section that i always find myself flipping back to because it has so many significant truths that i love and delight in it's chapter five all the way through chapter eight now, some may say this is the sanctification section of the book of Romans, and that's, that's, pretty, that's a pretty good understanding of it. This is, this is how kind of justification by faith works itself out in your life, you could say it that way. But it seems to me that a better way to understand uh, these chapters in Romans is actually to say this is the assurance of hope section in the letter to the Romans. It's all about assurance of hope. Remember that, remember the way it starts there in chapter 5 in those first two verses, right? We boast in the hope of the glory of God. And then verse 3 continues, and not only this, but we also boast in our afflictions. Notice, even afflictions don't shake our assurance. Afflictions we boast in, knowing that affliction brings, what? About perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not put to shame because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given us. Paul is now starting to explain this great solution. He, he comes away from kind of revealing the solution of justification by faith. And he says, no, wait, I don't think you guys totally really grasp how amazing this is. Let's step back. Let's pause for a minute and examine what? Justification by faith alone means for the believer's assurance. 
And so he goes on in chapter 5, and chapter 6, and chapter 7, and chapter 8, and all of these chapters bolster and strengthen our assurance of salvation. And notice how he ends chapter 8, very similar to chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. What does he say in chapter 8, 31? What then shall we say to these things? We've been talking about all of the great things that we enjoy because we have been justified by faith alone. Here it is. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If you have been justified by faith, you have this assurance built in. If he has done this, how much more will he give me all things that I need for life and godliness? I have 100% assurance if I have been justified by faith. Or going on, verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And then Paul lists as many, as many options as he can think of for possibilities why assurance of salvation might be shaken. What does he say? Will affliction separate you? Will turmoil separate you? Will persecution separate you? Will famine or naked or peril or sword separate you? Then he says in verse 37, after quoting the Old Testament, because this is the way God's people are always treated, but in all these things we are overwhelmingly, we, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And then he says in verse 38 and 39, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul needs to step back after he's explained the solution and say to you, do you realize what this solution means? If you are justified by faith, nothing can separate you from the love of God. It doesn't matter how far you are down. It doesn't matter how great the forces are against you. If God is for you, nothing. You, you overwhelmingly conquer. That's what he says. You have a hope a certainty about the future. And that is because you know you've been justified by faith. Matter of fact, he, he kind of he begins the way he ends, right? He talks about our assurance, even in afflictions, we have assurance. Chapter 5, 1 through 5, what, what is that about, right? Hey, even afflictions in your life you have assurance in because you know that God is working in those afflictions to produce Sanctification, Christ-likeness. You have an unshakable hope in God, regardless of how difficult your life is. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, your Lord. You have, because of the gospel, 100% assurance. Because the gospel is rooted in the goodness and the, and the promises and the power of your God. And that is a glorious thing. That is a glorious thing. I would liken it to this, right? He, he says this in chapter, in chapter 8, in chapter 8, right? Who will bring a charge against you? He, verse 33 of chapter 8. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. 
This might be the, the biggest reason why some of us lack assurance of salvation. I have all of these examples for why I am not saved. I have sins in my life that seem to demonstrate other realities happening in my life. But notice what Paul says, if God has what? If God has justified you, who is to condemn? If Jesus has died and is raised and is interceding for you, who shall separate you? It's it's similar to uh, the Supreme Court, right? You may have a case that's wandering around through lower courts. But as soon as your case is decided by the Supreme Court, none of these other courts can say anything against you. And God, in Christ Jesus, in the righteousness of Christ, counted to you by faith, has declared you to be righteous in his eyes. And no other court can say anything about you. That is the assurance you have by faith. But uh, Paul does go on in these chapters in many ways to kind of explain our assurance and it's, it's, more, it's more than just the legal declaration of God, although it's, it's, it's founded on this. It's, it's also about how the gospel transforms you. And this is where the, the idea of, of sanctification comes in, in these chapters, right? In chapter 5, 12 through 21, we, we see that in Christ we have freedom. We have freedom from death. And we, we look at this whole historical picture of mankind in chapter 5, 12 through 21, right? In Adam all died. That's where sin came from. From one man who sinned. And now sin is in all of us. But in Christ, grace abounds all the more. Chapter 5, verse 15. Uh, the gracious gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, how much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many? Because Christ has died and you are in Christ, you are actually freed from the judgment, from the, from, from the effects of the fall in death, right? Death is no longer the dominating r- rule in your life. Grace is. You, you have freedom from death. Not that the believer never dies, but the believer is not doomed by death. Uh, death is not because of their sin. Also, in chapter 6, we see this. Uh, we have freedom from sin and even self. That's what Paul says. And there's a question there in chapter 6, verse 1. Hey, so if we've got all this grace, if grace is reigning in our life, do we just sin that grace may abound? And Paul says, no, that completely misunderstands the purpose and the, the power under which God has saved you. God has saved you from sin in order that sin may not rule and reign in your life. You no longer have to be a slave to sin now that you are in Christ Jesus. And that is great assurance Sin is not inevitable. Matter of fact, he, he commands us because we're so quick to, to listen to sin even still as Christians. He commands us, therefore, because of the power and the purpose of God, in verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Notice what he's saying there. You can obey. You are no longer a slave of sin. 
God's power and God's purposes in salvation are to call you to obedience. And you can obey, finally, in Christ Jesus. That is great assurance of hope in the believer's life. And then he, he moves on and does something kind of tricky. In chapter 7, he talks about our freedom from the law. Now, I've been helped a lot by several members in this congregation, Joel, uh, Jay, to understand Romans 7 in a much better way. I do not, I do not think that Romans 7 is talking about the believer's current experience with sin in their life. And a lot of people take it this way. A lot of people that I deeply respect take it this way. But there are several things that give me a problem with the interpretation that Romans 7 is talking about the believer's current situation with sin in their life. For one, all of the things that are said in Romans 7 seem to be in contrast to everything that's being said in Romans 6 and Romans 8, right? All the things that are said in Romans 7 seem to be even in contrast to the very things Paul says in Romans 7 itself as well. Romans 7, look at this, Romans 7 verse 4. My brothers, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. Notice that, we have been joined to Christ in order that we may be freed from the the power, the grip of death and sin in order that we may belong to Christ and bear fruit for Christ. That's, that's what he's saying right there. And that's actually Romans 6. That's exactly what he's talking about in Romans 6. But then in, in, in verse 5, notice, he says, but For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now that we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were constrained, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Notice what Paul is saying. Hey, when we were previously living under the law as Jews, we found defeat. Matter of fact, we found the law in verse 5 to arouse our sinful passions. And we were unable to bear fruit to God. All we did was bear fruit to death. But now that we serve in the newness of the Spirit and not the oldness of the letter, we are released from the law and we are able to bear fruit to God. All to say, chapter 7 appears to be, to me, not talking about the, the believer and their current ongoing struggle with sin. It seems to be Paul, for the purpose of assurance, contrasting the new covenant believer's Uh, hope in the Spirit with the old covenant believers' defeat and difficulty and despair under the law, right? That's what he says in verse 5, right? While we were in the flesh. And notice, chapter 7, verse 1, I'm speaking to you who know the law, who are Jews. You guys yourself know that we were unable to find assurance under the law. The, The law just told us how bad we were. And now that we serve in the newness, verse 6, in the newness of the Spirit, we are able to walk in newness of life, bear fruit for God. This this chapter, I love the way, actually, Jay says it in, in an article I read. This chapter is not about the believer's struggle with sin. It's too Jewish. It's too Old Testament. It's too much about living by the law. It's too defeated. It's too fruitless. It's too spiritless, 
right? There's no spirit in Romans 7. It's an obnoxious uh, silence. Where is the spirit? We see the spirit talked about in the newness of the new life in 7 verse 6. And then we talk, we talk about the spirit once again in chapter 8. But all in between that in Romans 7, it seems to be describing a spiritless life. This is the life of the, under the old covenant and the defeat that they had. It's too defeated. Notice what Paul says in verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am fleshly having been sold into bondage under sin. Paul is, once again, kind of presenting a picture of the Old Covenant Jew in his own kind of uh, character of him, right? This is what I was like. I was unable to do anything good. I was fleshly. I was sold under the bondage of sin. And it's too fruitless as well. Verse 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the working out of the good is not. Paul says right there, well, I want to do good, but I can't. Now, just jump out of Romans 7 for a second. And if you had someone that came to you and said, I want to follow Jesus, but I can't, and there's no fruit in my life. What would that suggest to you? Well, you're not. You're not a Christian. If there's no fruit in your life, if, if all you have is good desires, good desires won't get you to heaven. Obedience and fruit manifest faith, right? That's what Paul is saying right here. I want to do good, but I can't. This is the struggle of even the old, uh, old covenant saint in the Old Testament. I want to do good, but I have no ability in myself to do it. So all I find is condemnation and difficulty and struggle. And that's what causes Paul to rejoice so much in Romans 8, verse 1, right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That also causes Paul to say, look, we have the ability to obey even now. No condemnation. Christ fulfills the righteousness of the law, chapter 8, 1 through 3. And because Christ fulfills the righteous requirement of the law, now the Spirit dwells in me and gives me the ability to obey. It's called the fruits of the Spirit, people. It's not called the fruits of your faith. It's called the fruits of the Spirit alive in your members. That's where fruit in your faith comes from. The ability that comes to you through the presence of God in you. And this all produces assurance of salvation, right? Because the, the Spirit is in you, you no longer have to sin. That's what he says in, in Romans 8, 4 through 5. Look at what he says. Uh, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We get to walk according to the Spirit now. Verse 5, for those who are, uh, who, who are according to the flesh... Uh, so, for those who... Sorry, LSB is very different than ESV, and I'm still working on it. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the, the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Notice the absolute contrast between the person in the flesh versus the person in the Spirit. You have the ability to not sin. You also have the ability to kill sin. He says this in verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the practices of the body, you will live. Notice the contrast between the oldness of the old way and the newness of the new way. Power, ability, killing sin. 
He even says in verse 26, you have the Spirit himself praying on your behalf when you offer up these really lame prayers. The Spirit himself is praying better prayers from inside of you for you. And then, of course, you've got this amazing statement, God, through the Spirit, by the work of Christ, is bringing you all the way home. Those, in verse 30, he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Right there is this assurance. People look at that verse and they say, there's a chain assurance that the believer has all the way from predestination to glorification. That is the assurance that the believer has. And this all comes from what? The righteousness of Christ that enables the Spirit of Christ to be operational inside of us and the fruits of the Spirit to be manifest. This is soaring assurance. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ because the Holy Spirit's in you and because the, the, the righteousness that you require is completely, perfectly achieved in Christ Jesus. That's... that's that's kind of the, the chapters here. Let me just go over them one more time in detail. Not uh, Romans, Romans 5, freedom from death, that's what the believer has. Freedom from sin and self, that's what Romans 6 tells. Freedom from the law in 7, that's what Romans 7 is about. And then this is all freedom by the Holy Spirit. And this results in that triumphant pronunciation in verse 31 of chapter 8, right? Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Nothing. Nothing. Christ Jesus is the one who died, Christ intercedes, and the Holy Spirit is dwelling within us. You, believer, have hope of salvation. Now, this turns to the, the second reason today we want to talk about uh, why you should know the message of Romans. One more reason to know the message of Romans. This comes to you from chapter 9 through chapter 11. If you know the message of Romans, not only do you have soaring assurance, but you also can humble yourself before God in true worship. That's, I'm just going to suggest to you that that's what Romans 9 through 11 will produce in you. Humble worship. Now, humility before God is a very important thing. It says in Isaiah 66 verse 2, God says, this is the one on whom I will look, to him who is humble and contrite in spirit, and who trembles at my word. There's an implication in that, right? There are those kinds of people who God does not look. There are kinds of people that God does not pay attention to. Those people who are not humble and contrite of heart. So humility and contrition of spirit is an important thing, right? I want to be humble, and I want to come to God in humble worship. Otherwise, he will not receive my worship. And this is what these three chapters are really trying to do. They're trying to cause you to humble yourself before God in worship. Now, I, I, I told you last week, right, Paul has to answer a big problem, a big problem to his solution, right? Because Romans 8, faithfulness of God. What can separate you from the love of God? If God has made promises to you, justified you by faith, nothing can separate you from God. The question that none of you are asking, but that everyone in the Roman church was asking was, well, if that's the way God is, and if that's the hope of our salvation, that's great. But I can point to a group of people that God made promises to that aren't following God right now, that God doesn't seem to be faithful to right now, and that is the nation of Israel. God made promises to them that he 
would what? Send a Messiah, restore the kingdom of Israel, and rule the earth through that kingdom. What about them? Because if that's not happening right now, can we be sure that God can actually save us as well? So Romans 9 through 11 is really tackling this issue. What about the Jews? Now, Paul approaches this in a way that humbles us. That humbles us in a kind of humility that should result in worship. Watch what he does. Romans 9, if you know the message of Romans 9, you, you, you know that God is all-sovereign. This is how Paul answers the question about what about the Jews. God is all-sovereign. Romans, Romans 9 talks about how God chooses who he will. And not all Israel is his chosen Israel. Uh, God does what he wants. These are difficult verses for people like us that live in, in a country like this where we pride ourselves on our independence and our freedom of choice, right? To read that God does what he wants. To read that, hey, he's the potter and I'm the clay. That is a humbling thing to behold. Matter of fact, when we, when we ask that question in verse 19, right? Uh, why does he still find fault if he's the one who's judging for who can resist his will? How can God justly judge anyone if he's sovereign like this and he's responsible for turning my heart to love him or to disobey him? Uh, how can he find fault? Paul basically answers this. You don't even have a right to ask that question. Because he's God and you are not. If you believe that he is sovereign, this is what comes with it. Matter of fact, the closest he comes to answering that question about why God chooses some and doesn't choose others is right there in Romans 9, verse 22. It's this, and and Paul is kind of suggesting this in kind of a hypothetical situation, right? What if God, wanting to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath having been prepared for destruction? And in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, right? Here's the reason why God chooses some and doesn't choose others, because he wants to demonstrate his glory, right? The ultimate reason why anything happens, why some are chosen and some are not, is for his own glory. What does that cause in you? It can either cause a rebellion, a resistance, or it can say, holy is he, to be worshipped and praised is he. Because this is the purpose for which he has caused all things to happen. But this is a humbling truth that God is all sovereign. But notice this, in Romans 10, Paul then also moves to uh, the necessity of the response of faith on our part, right? And this is the explanation why the Jews have rejected their Messiah, right? They have not pursued their God through faith, but they have pursued their God through works. Notice what he says in verse 30 of chapter 9. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness laid hold of righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith, but Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not attain that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Why did Israel fail? Because they thought they could achieve the righteousness that God requires in their works, right? But Paul goes on to show, hey, this is the response to a sovereign God who is wanting to demonstrate grace. This is your only response, not to try to work towards him in righteousness, but to respond in faith. 
Matter of fact, faith, Romans 10 shows, is not some sort of newfangled New Testament thing. Like the Old Testament, they work for righteousness. And, but now in the New Testament, we, we, we believe in God by faith. Matter of fact, no, notice, I, I wrote down in my margins here, all of the Old Testament references that Paul uses to demonstrate that God has always, God has always and only accepted his people by faith. This brings us all the way back to actually Genesis, where, where God counts righteousness to Abraham by faith. Why? Because he believed God. Right? Leviticus 18 in verse 5, Deuteronomy 30 in verse 7, Joel 2 in verse 13, uh, Isaiah 52 in verse 15, Isaiah 53 in verse 16, uh, Psalm 19 verse 4 in verse 18, Deuteronomy 32 in verse 19, Isaiah 65 in verse 20, Isaiah 65 2 in verse 21. It has always been a matter of faith. You have always related to this God based on him crediting you with righteousness that you do not deserve, that you receive by faith. You've always come to God with nothing in your hand, but only clinging to God and his promises. Remember, remember what the people of God do. Remember how faith is described in chapter 4, verse 21. Faith is described, illustrated in Abraham as not something you do, all these great works in you, but faith is simply this, uh, simply this, being fully assured that what God has promised, he is also able to do. Faith says, if you are promising me a righteousness, not my own, that I cling to by faith, that I am, I am fully convinced that you are able to do that. That is what faith does. And this is the way God has always interacted with his promises. And what does this do? What does believing in the, the, the truth of faith alone do? It, it, it absolutely devastates your pride, right? Because faith can only boast in God's promises, can't it? That's all faith can do. Faith can only say, you are saying this and I am choosing to believe it. You are saying trust in Christ alone and that is what I am choosing to believe in. Not in anything in myself, but everything in what you have said. Faith destroys pride. God's, God's sovereignty dest- destroys your pride in chapter 9. God's requirement of you, faith alone, destroys your pride in chapter 10. And then Paul has one more thing in chapter 11 that he wants to show us. And this is, a, this is helpful for creating worship in us. God's, God's faithfulness destroys our pride. Chapter 11 is all about God's faithfulness. God has a future solution that may be not apparent right now, but that he will reveal. God has not rejected his people. God has not rejected Israel. Number one, because Paul is a Christian, right? Uh, chapter 11, verse 1, I too am an Israelite, a seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. I believe in Christ Jesus. And, and also, even in the Old Testament, he says in verse 4, right, there were, there were people in the Old Testament that believed in God as well, even when the rest of the nation was going astray. God has always had a remnant people. God has not rejected his people. He has a remnant people presently. Matter of fact, this is God's pattern. He's always had a remnant people. And then he, he'll, he'll show in verse 11 all the way through 24, God has a purpose. God has a purpose in what he's done in extending this good news to to unbelieving pagans, to Gentiles. And what's the purpose? 
The purpose is to show his own people the foolishness of their, their self-made righteousness and to make them jealous because they see the goodness and the beauty of God in Christ Jesus as the, the nations, the undeserving nations, now can find justification by faith. That's the purpose in which God has turned to the Gentiles, to actually get Israel's attention. That's kind of a weird, that's kind of a weird thought, right? Uh, but Paul himself says it, right? I, I, I'm preaching this gospel to make my fellow Jews je- uh, jealous, right? I'm pursuing this other girl to make the girl I really like jealous. Uh, uh, only God can do this. Don't do this, right? But this is what Paul is essentially saying, right? God is now revealing his righteousness to the Gentiles to, through his grace, through his sovereignty within, get their attention and cause them to see and believe. And then finally, Paul closes with a, a plan, God's plan. And this is how you really know that God is not done with Israel yet. Because in verse 25, Paul himself says it. I do not want you, brothers, to be uninformed of this mystery. So that you, watch this, will not be wise in your own estimation. But know this, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. That's the Jews. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. All of those promises in the Old Testament are irrevocable. God's promises to fulfill a kingdom plan through his nation are irrevocable promises. And God has a future plan when he's going to bring Israel back and fulfill all of those promises to Israel. Now, some people want to pay, play fast and loose here. This is actually referring to a remnant of Israel and the Gentiles together. But I don't totally understand how you could see that, right? He, he, he says this, right? He, he, he defines Israel and the Gentiles as two separate groups in 25. And then in 26, he says all Israel will be saved. It seems to suggest that he has a future plan for national Israel, right? In contrast to the Gentiles. That is, that is the, the clear teaching of Paul, right? This is, this is God's pattern. He's always had a people for his own sake. This is God's purpose. He is using the Gentiles to get Israel's attention. And this is God's future plan, right? To call Israel back to him. Why? Not because of anything good done in them, but because they are beloved for the sake of their fathers. A glorious truth, right? These, these three chapters, these three chapters should humble you in worship. Why? Because of this. Chapter 11, the first time I read Romans 11, I, I had the, 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 the reality of something that humbled me like nothing else. The center of God's universe is not me. It's not the Gentile believers. Matter of fact, God is working for greater glory outside of the church. Right? God has a future plan for his people. The center of God's universe is not anyone. God freely does what he does because the center of God's universe is God. And I should get on my face and be humbled before him. 
Matter of fact, this is, this is how Paul concludes it, right in verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I love that verse. I love that verse 35, right? Has someone given something to God that he's doing all of this in order to repay them? No. God is free in his gift, free in his choice, free in his salvation. And this humbles me in nothing else but worship, right? To him be glory forever and ever. For from him and through him and to him are all things. This salvation of justification by faith is from him. And this salvation of justification by faith alone is through him. That is Christ Jesus alone. And this salvation by justification uh, by faith is to him. For his praise alone, right? This should cause you to lower yourself in worship. And there's a surprise here, right? We talked about the soaring assurance that a believer can have because when God makes promises, it's a pretty sure thing. And we talked about the humility that worship should have. I got a surprise here for you. The, the lower you go in humility and worship, the higher your assurance rises, right? The lower you are, the less your salvation depends on you, and the more your salvation depends on God, the greater your assurance source. And that's what we, we come to here at the end of chapter 11, right? Great assurance, because we serve a great God. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for um, this morning and this passage that... Uh, manifests your truth and the glorious truth of the gospel, the, the, the soaring assurance that we can have in, in being justified in you, not having a righteousness of our own, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, and also the humility that this provides because we see your sovereign power and selection even in this. Pray that we would be humble holders of faith and not proud. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.